We consider this morning Mark's gospel turning you down just a little One of the things that's fascinating, something that I've grown to love for many years, is jigsaw puzzles. Maybe you're like me. It's kind of a lost art. Many people don't uh, do that as often as it maybe was in the past. But as you consider jigsaw puzzles, they come in many shapes and sizes. Some have a few pieces, maybe 24, maybe that's more your liking, you know, 24-piece puzzles. Others have thousands of pieces, you know, somewhere in the 100,000-piece frames. Uh, some are more challenging because of the size of the pieces. Some are less because of the picture that they represent. Uh, so depending on the type of picture it is, makes it more challenging to put the puzzle together. Jigsaw puzzles, though, made up of these various parts and Intricate individual pieces, though they're independent uh, and have their own shape, we recognize that these pieces aren't really independent of each other, that they're rather part of a, a bigger picture They, as they fit together. Without one piece, the whole picture is incomplete. Right? The most frustrating thing, you've been working on a puzzle for, for maybe weeks or days or months or however it was, and there that one piece is missing. There you lay frustrated. How beautiful it is when, when all the pieces come together, when everything is in order, when, when you have the edge, and as those pieces begin to fill in, you begin to see the beautiful picture laid out before you. Well, friends, over the last two years, we have been considering uh, little pieces, uh, what we call verses in Mark's Gospel. Uh, we have journeyed over 62 Sundays, really, scattered throughout two years, considered the various pieces of Mark's gospel. And I thought it would be helpful as we leave Mark, not to part forever, but to return one day, but as we part from Mark to see, again, the many pieces put together in one narrative, one overarching story, as Mark originally wrote it, right? Mark didn't write it in, in in the intense, the way we use it, but rather wrote it as a whole, as a completion. And so what we want to consider together is what was what was these many pieces, how do they all fit together to tell one story, to tell the one message that Mark had for the church in Rome, the message that Mark has for you and for me today. And as we begin, I think it's just helpful, again, just to get some historical background now, we've considered this each week as we've looked at Mark's gospel, uh, but if you're like me, I tend to forget easily uh, what is happening. And so just remember that this is, it's called the gospel of Mark because we believe Mark wrote it, okay? Uh, John Mark, he was a, an earlier follower of Jesus. Uh, he traveled with Paul and with Peter. In fact, we believe he wrote this in the late 60s. You know, not those 60s, but the 60s, right? In 60 AD, near the time of Peter's death, he wrote that. And we believe, because of a lot of the information contained therein, that most likely a lot of the stories that Mark had got from Peter. Uh, Peter was the one who uh, shared with them. Now, we know that because Mark was an earlier follower, that there are many, uh, uh, that there are and he's an eyewitness to many of these events, but we see that most of this came from, from Peter. And so Mark has taken up this work under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write to the church in Rome. 
we believe that he's writing to the church in Rome because as we walk through the letter, there was many times where he would use Latin words. He would use Latin loan words like legion of demons or the centurion at the cross. Uh, those words would not have been normal for Mark to use unless he was writing to people who spoke Latin. And so we understand that he's writing then to a church in Rome who would have been persecuted, who would have been faced with difficulty and discouragement. He's writing to, to these people, but he's not writing to just those people. Friends, he's writing to us today. Uh, this message from Mark has been carried on down through the centuries. From one generation in us, this letter has been passed on because it is the living and enduring word of the Lord. The word penned by Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, I hope today that you hear that this message that Mark has is for you and for me. So what is the message of Mark's gospel? What is the, the overarching story that Mark is trying to tell? What is the message that he has? Well, it's this. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. By trusting in him and following him, you will enter Enter the eternal kingdom of God. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He sets out to prove to you and to me who Jesus is. And then follows that up with another theme, which is, what does it mean to follow him? What does it look like to follow this Jesus that he has told us about in the gospel? And so this morning, those are the two questions that we want to consider. As we consider Mark's message to the church, it reminds us of these two central questions of Christianity. Friends, if you're a Christian this morning, you want to know the answers to these questions. In fact, if you don't know the answers to these questions, I would highly doubt you know Jesus. Um, and perhaps this morning, if you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, self-consciously, you don't, wouldn't you know, label yourself in that, that those, those terms. You wouldn't say that you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Friends, I hope that you would see this morning what it looks like to follow Jesus, to see clearly who Jesus is, and ultimately ask yourself, will I trust him and follow him? That's the question Mark asked for us this morning. Who is Jesus, and will I follow him? So open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1. You're not looking, used to looking at God's Word. It's okay. We love you. I should grab one of those pew bottles in front of you. Uh, you can turn to page 836, Gospel of Mark. And we're going to consider this whole letter today. So we're going to do some moving around. And uh, and look, if you can't move fast, that's okay. Uh, you can just listen. Uh, if you're quick with the fingers and you can follow along, I'll try to go slow. But for time's sake, I'm not going to uh, spend a lot of time waiting. Uh, I don't want to waste your time this morning. And so if you can keep up as we move through this letter, I want to—I want you to see clearly who Jesus is this morning. That's why I, that's why I hope this morning. I want to show you who Jesus is. I want to show you not from my words, but, but from Mark's words to you, from, from the word of Christ. Well, who is Jesus? We see from the very first line, the very first words, that Jesus is the Son of God. That he's not a mere man but rather the eternal Son of God. Look at Mark chapter 1. We see the very beginning words that, that Mark gives us, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is telling us what he's going to write about. He's going to tell us about who Jesus is, that Jesus is the 
Son of God. What does that mean that he's the Son of God? What, what does that look like uh, in the life of Jesus? And then ultimately, what does that matter for us together? Well, we see here that Mark is revealing that Jesus, Jesus' authority is revealing his identity as the Son of God. And so Mark tells a series of stories throughout the narrative that seek to demonstrate to you and to I that Jesus is a man under a man with authority, excuse me. In fact, he has all the authority of God, his Father. Well, let's look at sort of his authority here in a few ways. First, we see his authority as a teacher. We see his authority as a teacher. Look at me in chapter 1, in verse 27. Jesus is there in Capernaum healing of healing a, a man with a demon. And look what happens as Jesus heals this man possessed by a dead demon. Look at how the crowds respond in verse 27. And they were amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And so what we see is that Jesus taught as one who had authority. He taught as one who had authority. We're told later in verse 38 that he traveled throughout uh, the, the countryside. That, and in fact, Jesus said that this is why he came. In verse 38, he says, Let us go on to the next towns that we may preach there, for that is why I came out. Uh, Jesus came to teach. He came to teach the will of God to God's people. He, was, he came to teach to anyone who would listen. And, and sadly, as we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, many people didn't. In fact, it was the religious leaders, the ones who knew the most, the, the know-it-alls, the ones who could pass all the Bible quizzes. They were the ones that they didn't know Jesus. They were the ones that rejected Jesus. They were the ones that didn't accept his teaching. And that's what we see in chapter 2, verse 28. You turn over a page, and we see here in this first contract, this sort of uh, first attempt by the religious leaders, a, a theme that, that sort of runs throughout, that Jesus authoritatively interprets the Old Testament. Jesus here, it, authoritatively, he, he interprets the Old Testament in a way that the scribes were unwilling. Look at what he says in verse 28. This is what Jesus' words. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, we might hear that and say, praise Jesus, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. But friends, that was scandalous. That was scandalous that a man would say he is Lord, that he has authority over the Sabbath, that he could break the Sabbath. What audacity that this man had. It's because he was one authority. He had authority as a teacher. Not only did he have authority as a teacher, but also we see in Mark's gospel that he had authority over sickness and disease. Uh, we see that through many stories. He, uh, he, we're not going to look at all of them, but he heals many, including uh, Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, he heals a paralytic. He heals a man with a withered hand. He heals a deaf man. He heals two blind men. And, and friend, just turn to, to Mark chapter 10 quickly uh, and look there at the blind Bartimaeus. Uh, Bartimaeus, excuse me. Uh, look there in chapter 10 and verse 46. Chapter 10 and verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and he, he was leaving Jericho with his disciples. A great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. This dude was well known. He was a popular blind beggar. Uh, everyone knew who he was. I mean, clearly, they knew who, who he was, and then they knew his dad. Uh, he, he was a well-known beggar. Everyone had seen him. He, he was an annoying guy. You know, you know the ones that are at the stoplights that are, 
They're always begging you for money. Right? You, you see them all the time. You know them. Uh, you probably know my name because I mean, they're always there. Uh, they're always looking for a handout. And here that blind beggar was. Everyone knew Bartimaeus. And he knew the Lord. Look at verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he cried out and saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out, oh, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now just pause for a moment. Blind man crazy. I mean, what did he know about Jesus that would cause him to ask such a question? Don't glance over the power of the question that he asked. In our scientific day and age, we often lose the marvel of healing. We go to the doctor. Get some medicine and get better. He's asking a man to recover his sight. A man that we are told is blind and cannot see. Jesus just says, we see here in this story. Jesus is declaring his authority over sickness and disease. Not only that, we see his authority over nature. Several times throughout the letter we have seen uh, Jesus' authority over nature. Uh, turn back to chapter 4. Back, 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 back. Chapter 4 and verse 41. A familiar story to many as the disciples are out on that boat they're crying, Jesus, save us, save us. We're drowning. Verse 41 of chapter 4, the disciples say this, and they were all filled with great fear and said to one another, Who, who then is this? Who is Jesus? Who is this man that even the winds and the sea obey him? You see, Jesus had authority over nature. Like Moses, he fed 5,000 and then 4,000. He walks on water in chapter 6. The man had authority over nature. He bent nature to his own will. Not only that, we see throughout the gospel, he has authority over demons. Several times, Jesus is exercising demons. He's delivering demons. In fact, we learn in chapter 5, the man who was possessed by a legion, a thousand demons, Jesus heals him. Not only does he have authority over demons, you see, most gloriously, he has authority over death. In chapter 5 there, in the story following the healing of the demoniac here in verse 21 down through, we see the woman who had the discharge of blood. But before that, we see that a, a very important ruler came to Jesus. Jairus was his name. And he said, Jesus, my daughter's dead. I need you. Or was sick. But then she ended up dying because... Jesus delayed. And Jesus goes to Jairus' house 
and he says, look, the, the girl's fine, everything's good, uh, she's just sleeping. And, and there they are, mocking Jesus, laughing at Jesus. Jesus, what do you mean she's alive? No, we saw her, she's dead. There's no life in her. We're not dumb, Jesus. We know what dead people look like. Jesus walks into that room and he says, little girl, I say to you, get up. She gets up. Jesus has authority over life and death. And we see that culminated in the cross of Christ as Jesus hangs on the cross there in chapter 15, bleeding. He sighs his last. It looks like all hope is lost. The enemy has won. Victory is his. But then the sun comes up in the morning. There in chapter 16 and verse 1, and the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. Victory over death. But even more importantly, turn back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man, that's Jesus, speak like that? Like, speak with authority. Why does he speak like he knows what he's talking about? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? <laughs> Friends, do not miss the argument that is being made here. Only God can forgive sins. You got it clear? They're right. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can do that. And immediately, what does Jesus do? <laughs> He says in verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus has authority to forgive sin because he's God. If God alone can forgive sin and Jesus here is claiming his authority to forgive sin, then Jesus is claiming something very clear this morning, that he is God. But authority comes also in his authority over people. We see throughout this gospel, Jesus calls people to follow him. He has authority over people, people like you and like he sends out his disciples. He repeatedly commands people to do things like this man. He tells them to get up and go. He has authority over people. When Jesus speaks, people listen. We see here also that Jesus' identity as the Son of God is revealed also through others. We're not going to consider the many cases, but throughout the gospel, we have seen story after story. And most importantly, we have seen two witnesses from God himself. First at Jesus' baptism in chapter 1, verse 11, and then at the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 9, when God says the same thing. That is, God the Father says that this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God the Father himself testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. As we saw a few weeks ago, even Jesus' executioner, even the man who killed Jesus, declares at the end, truly this man Beginning to end, we see the story uh, of Mark is that Jesus is one who has authority as the Son of God. Now, why does this matter? Well, why should we care that Jesus has authority? What's the big deal? Well, in short, because if he doesn't have authority, 
And everything he said and everything he did is meaningless. Most importantly, the word of forgiveness. The word that you could be right with God is meaningless. Apart from the authority of Jesus. If Jesus is not who he claims to be, then we are of all people hopeless. Consider the claim that he makes at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Look with me in chapter 1 and verse 14. If you want the theme verse for the entire book, it's this one and one other in 1045. We'll consider that in a moment. But look first here. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God, or the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Now, if Jesus claimed that the kingdom of God was at hand, and that there was a need to repent and believe in the gospel of God, if, if Jesus was a liar, if Jesus had no authority to say those things, then we just, just like cut that out, like Thomas Jefferson style. We just chop that out of our Bible. But if Jesus was one who had authority, then we need to heed that warning. We see also in Mark's Gospel that not only Jesus is the Son of God, but also the Son of Man. The Son of Man. A favorite title of Jesus throughout, in fact, Jesus never calls himself the Son of God. He always refers to himself as the Son of Man. A title picked up from Daniel 9 uh, and applied to him. And what we understand by this is a messianic title. It's a title saying that he is the Christ. So remember what Mark said. He is. This is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ, the Son of God. So that's sort of that second part, that, that he is the Son of Man. He's the Christ, the ransom for sinners. And that's the whole thing. When Jesus is using that phrase, and there is, like I said, 14 different times he used it. We're not going to look at any of those, but I want you to look at just one of them. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. And I trust you we're going to kind of hang out in this, this uh, vicinity for a few moments and consider here in the pinnacle of Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 10 in verse 45. Page 847, 1045. For even the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking, did, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So you see what he's saying here is this, that the Son of Man, the Christ, uh, the Son of God, came for this purpose. He didn't come for people to, to, to make him a king, to... to, to to dawn on him and do all great things for him. No, he came to die, he says. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's really the point all throughout this section of Mark's gospel has been that he came to suffer in the place of sinners. The Son of God didn't just come and say, hey, hi, how are you doing? It's great to find meet you. He came for a purpose, for a reason. As we looked at earlier, he came to declare the kingdom of God has arrived. It has arrived because the king has arrived. He came to suffer in the place of sinners. He came to give his life as a ransom. That is, he came to redeem a people for his own possession. And friends, that's the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's the story about how a sovereign God is calling a people out of the mass of humanity to save for his own glory. For his own purposes. He does it. And we don't know why he does it. 
Well, we don't know why. He does it for his own glory. We don't know why he chooses us, but he does. It's the beauty of the cross of Christ, the beauty of the gospel of Mark, is it tells that same old story, the story of the Bible, that Christ Jesus came to die for sinners. He also came to give us life where there was death. That little girl was a picture of the problem. Problem with death. Jesus came to deal with the problem of death. He did that by dying on the cross. Friends, the gospel means good news. It's good news because God is angry. God is angry. God is a God of wrath, anger. Friends, if you don't have that sort of category in your mind for God, uh, friend, I just invite you to read the Bible. Just read the Bible. All throughout the Bible, we see God is serious about sin. He can't stand rebellion. He can't stood, he could not stand the rebellious Adam and Eve. That's why he kicked him out of the garden. He didn't want to be around him anymore. He couldn't be around. And friends, he cannot be around us because we are sinners. The truth is that all of humanity is fallen. There's not one who's innocent, not even my little newborn that's at home is innocent. Everyone is guilty and deserving. Because all are sinners. The Bible is clear about that. And friends, that's not very good news. That's terrible news. That's awful news. That's fearful news and frightful news. Like kind of news I want to go like hide in a hole that I'm going to die and God's going to kill me. The good news is, is that God came to deal with sin. Amen. To deal with us and our rebellious hearts. He, he wouldn't let us go. He wouldn't leave us alone. I love God in that. He will not let us alone. He bothers us. Gets into our lives, messes it up for his own glory, to remind us of our need for him. When he came to save you and me, we all deserve death. But instead of receiving what we deserve, we receive life. He died the death we deserve. We deserve death. He died. He did that so that all those who would repent of their sins and trust in him could be saved. Well, that's the message that Mark has. That you can be saved this morning. That you too can be saved from the wrath of God. Friend, this is a glorious message. That's what we want to consider now. The question of will you follow this Jesus? Well, much more can be said about Jesus, much more. In fact, we have spent 62 Sundays thinking about the Jesus in the Bible, particularly in Mark's gospel. But what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow this Jesus? What does it mean to repent and believe as Jesus exhorts in this gospel? That's what we want to consider this sort of second main point of the sermon. Will I trust in Jesus and follow him? Friends, we must remember that Mark is writing to Christians. First and foremost, he's writing this to Christians. So if you're a Christian this morning, this is to you. This is helpful because unlike John, who seeks to really demonstrate in a fuller fashion who Jesus is, for non-Christians, Mark has an eye towards the Christian. He has an eye towards what we call discipleship, that is, following Jesus. And so that helpful question is, is, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, I think it begins by trusting him, by trusting in him. And the question then is, will I trust him? So what does it mean, what does it look like to trust Jesus? Well, thankfully, Mark tells us. 
we see here in the very beginning of Mark's gospel, we don't have to turn there, we read it, is that Jesus declared a message of urgency. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. It was a message of urgency. That, that is that you need to listen to this message. This is, this is not one of those commercials you need to tune out, right? Not one of those ones you need to fast forward through as you're watching your favorite show. No, this is a message you should listen to. It's not a message either that you should be set aside. You know, kind of, you know, when things are convenient in life, when things are kind of busy right now, a lot going on, new job, uh, new home, new, new, new this, new that. Uh, there's all kinds of things going on. I just set that aside. Right? I don't need to worry about Jesus right now. There's always time for Jesus. And that is dangerous to think. Friends, the time is now. The time is now. Listen up. The kingdom of God. Today is the day of salvation, Jesus says. Now is the time. Why? Because the king has come. The next time the king comes, it will not be for reconciliation and peace, but it will be for war. Finally, fully defeat God's enemies. And so we, we should heed and listen this morning. So I want you to think this morning, if you're a Christian, Mark, writing this letter to you, exhorting you to repentance and faith. I know often we think about repentance, we think, oh, that's something we did, you know, when we were nine years old, uh, something we did when we were a kid, uh, we believed back then, and we kind of you know, moved on from that. But friends, that message is for you today, it is for me today, that's why we led in a prayer of confession, repentance, a moment ago in our service, because we need repentance daily. So what is repentance? Well, it's simply this. It begins with confessing, which is nothing more than agreeing with God that you are a wicked sinner. You're kind of like, yeah, God, I got that. That's true. It's a true story about me. Paul says, I'm the worst of sinners. That's a true story about Paul. It's a true story about us, too. It's agreeing with God that sin is sin and not trying to sort of explain or excuse sin. You know, we're the master excuse makers. Oh, you know, she made me do it. Uh, repentance, then, is turning away from what you're doing or your way and going God's new way. It's another way to sort of look at it. Repentance is turning. Sort of like a ship turns around. You stop going one way, we turn around and go the other way. Stop going your way, start going God's way. And repentance begins by asking and thinking through some really difficult questions. And those are the, these are the questions I want you to think about this morning. If you're a Christian, these questions are equally applicable to you, just as to non-Christians. The question is, am I willing for Jesus to be first in my life? That's the question you want to wrestle with. That's the question of repentance. And friends, that question is every day. You should begin your day with Jesus every day saying, Jesus, are you going to be the first in my life today? So let's look at some examples of that right here in chapter 8. Jesus gives his disciples sort of the pinnacle of what it means to follow him. <laughs> his disciples are, are, are a funny group throughout. They're really eager beavers to follow Jesus, and Jesus always pushes back on them. He always does. He says, no, you can't do it. No, you can't follow me. Oh, you want to follow me? Oh, you want to follow me? Well, let me tell you what that's going to look like. Look at verse 4. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save him. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with his holy angels. Friends, the question then begins, am I willing for Jesus to be before my will? This question you want to wrestle with in your heart and life. Are you willing to set aside your will, that is, your plans, your purposes, your schemes, what you have all conjured up in your mind, what, what you're going to do, and are you willing to submit that to the will of Jesus? Is Jesus going to be before your will? And we've seen stories throughout, people who came to Jesus, who wanted to follow him, who looked really promising him, and a lot of potential in them. But it's one of the hardest things of being a pastor. Genuinely, I think this is one of the, hard, one of the hardest things. There, there are many, but one is seeing people who come eagerly to follow Jesus and then follow him. Yes. To see the root of To see that the seed was cast among the rocks. And I think it comes down to this question. Before my will. Will you put Jesus before your will? But secondly, will you put Jesus before your ambitions? Notice here, Jesus says, if you take up your cross, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. Whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses life for the sake of the gospel will save it. For your ambitions, before what you want to do. Thirdly, before your popularity, before your popularity, all throughout the gospel, there have been people who wanted to follow Jesus, but it just wasn't cool. I know it's funny, right? You know, we dealt with that like in high school, right? Popularity. Like, that's over. Like, middle school, high school, we dealt with that. We're, we moved on from that. But friends, don't we deal with the same temptations today? <laughs> when friends and family sort of, they don't openly say, oh my gosh, you follow Jesus. But they, they there's a sort of like, really? Aren't you kind of too old for that? Like, it's like little children's Sunday, like vacation Bible school stuff. Like, come on. Like, really? You believe in a dead man coming alive? Come on. That's silly. That's silly stuff to consider. You're going to give your life for the sake of the gospel? You're going to leave your good job so that you can go share the gospel overseas? What? Friends, maybe it's none of those questions. Maybe it's just what? Before what? What am I putting before Jesus? Remember the rich young ruler? For him it was money. For you it may not be money. What is it that he's asking you to lay down that you're unwilling to lay down? You claim to be following Jesus. You're saying, now, I'm going to follow Jesus. But what is it that you're holding on to and saying, no, Jesus, I want you and this. Jesus, I want you and my job. And so you know what? I don't know, Jesus, I want to follow you, but you know what? I've got to make some cash, and so someday I'm going to make my cash. Friends, for you, your job is your, your work. It's who you serve. Maybe it's your money. Maybe you just keep all that money for yourself and you don't give generously like the Lord exhorts you to. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your family. Maybe you've got
You've got your family so wrapped up in your heart that you're not willing to make some really clear and hard decisions and be clear with them and say, look, if you continue to live your life that way, you're going to hell. Maybe you need to have that conversation with your family today. Maybe it's your entertainment. Maybe it's your stuff. Friends, maybe it's your comforts. Maybe you just love to be comfortable. You love, love your comfortable life and all your comfortable stuff that comes along with it. And in that comfortable life, you're not willing. Jesus says so clearly, look, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up a, a torture device and you've got to die. I mean, let's be clear about what Jesus is, is and isn't saying here. Jesus isn't saying, look, follow me when it's convenient for you. Jesus is saying, follow you, follow me when it's inconvenient. Because then you'll know whether or not you're really following Jesus. When it actually costs you something. Friends, I just wonder, what is it that is keeping you from faithfully following Jesus? <laughs> so what is faith? We look at what it means to repent, what it means to turn, to follow Jesus in that way. What does faith mean? Throughout the gospel, we've seen several stories where we've seen the evidence of faith. We've considered some. Like the, like the blind Bartimaeus who came and said, Jesus, heal me. I know you can. So faith, first and foremost, is taking Jesus at his word. It's trusting that his word is true and trustworthy. It's reaching out to receive Jesus. Uh, like, that, like that woman with the discharge of blood, she reaches out for Jesus. It's having childlike trust we've seen. You have to come to Jesus as a child, not as a little baby, not as a, a real infant or a real child, but that is childlike faith. That is a sense of trusting Jesus in his words. It's knowing that God accepts me. That's what faith means. That's what believing means. Finally, receiving Jesus means receiving him as a king. That is submitting yourself to the authority of Jesus. You know, I'm often hard on people who, who struggle with the Sunday work field, and I often say to them, look, test your faith. God has just invited you to walk by faith and not by sight. Now, it's easy to say that when, you know, you don't have, you know, you're not struggling with having to work on Sundays or not working. It's easy to say that when, you know, I work a, you know, a Monday to Friday job, and I'm never tempted to another thing when we really wrestle with some serious things. Am I willing to step out in faith? Do I believe Jesus has all authority? I mean like authority even over my boss? Over the decisions he makes? Over the way he lives in Do I believe in the authority of Jesus or not? That's a good question. So the question then becomes for us this morning is will you follow Jesus? If the call to follow Jesus is a costly call, will you follow him? Will you go where Jesus is calling you to go? Friends, the word we often use to follow Jesus is that word discipleship. Not to be confused with discipling. Discipling means helping others follow Jesus. Discipleship means following Jesus. That's, a, that's a, our following of Jesus. Okay, Just to be kind of clear on the language here. So what does it mean? Following Jesus means that you obey him. You obey his commands. Now, clearly, we understand that we're not doing this perfectly. Okay. It's about faithfulness. Is there, is there a track record in my life where I'm following the commands of Jesus? Friends, following Jesus we see in the Gospel of Mark is hard. I hope, I hope to make that so clear with you. I, I don't want an easy, low-shelf gospel. 
The gospel is a high gospel. He would not have used the words he used. Look at an example here in chapter 10 and verse 23 of the rich young ruler. Chapter 10 and verse 23. Now I wonder what you might have said to that rich young, young ruler who went to Jesus that day. How you might have coached him to follow Jesus. It's alright. I mean, you know, we'll get sanctified. You give your money up one day. You know, maybe when you've been a Christian for 20 years, you might give it up or something like that. But what does Jesus say to them? Jesus looking around and said to his disciples, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Friends, right there, Jesus himself says it's hard to get into the kingdom of God. It's hard. Why? Because we love ourselves so much more than we love Jesus. That's why we need the help of the Spirit to lay down these things. Friends, we want to understand that following Jesus is hard. He never promises it's going to be easy. If you've been a Christian for, for several decades, you can understand that as soon as you believe on Jesus, as soon as you trust in Him, as soon as you follow Him, what happens? Satan like, amasses an army. He comes for you. He would see nothing better than to see you fall. And that is why the, 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 the biggest mistake you can make as a Christian is to try to follow Jesus alone. That is, without the local church. I see it so often here. Friends, you will not last long following Jesus without other Christians. You need help. You need encouragement along the way because it is we see also it's costly. Following Jesus costs the disciples their, their jobs, their livelihood, their wealth, their money. They laid their father's business aside so they could go and preach the gospel. They had it easy. They had it easy. They had their father's business. They had money. They had position. They had power. They had it all. But they laid it down to follow Jesus. Jesus himself, in his attempt to be faithful to follow God, lost his family. His family, his brothers, like, you're a fool. What are you doing, Jesus? Good night. You see, following Jesus cost John the Baptist his life. Friends, we need some John the Baptist today who will stand against kings, against presidents, say what you're doing is sin. Friends, Jesus, following Jesus will cost you everything. And you must, must know that. Sam Alberry has this self-help little definition. Denying yourself is saying no to you, to, excuse me, saying no to who you thought you were all your life and saying yes to Jesus in his head. Friends, that's what it means to follow Jesus, saying no to you. Friends, if you, you're a Christian this morning, you, you may here this morning need to refresh yourself. Just remind yourself in that area. Say, you know, I need to say no to me. And I need to say yes to Jesus. I need to say no to who I am and to say yes to who Jesus I need to die, as Paul says, that Christ may live for me. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It means you die. That Christ might live. It's the greatest message that you can have in you. That's the message that Mark has. That if you'll turn from your sins, that if you'll trust in him and travel with him, he will take you to the kingdom of God. Friends, we've considered these many pieces. We've considered the, the various pieces of this, this big picture that Mark is 
making. It's a marvelous story of a man named Jesus. A man who lived in Nazareth. Who walked this earth just like you and I. Mark tells us that he was more than a mere man. He was the God-man made incarnate. The God-man came into the world to save us, to save sinners this morning. So if you hear this morning these exhortations, you think, wow, I don't think I can follow Jesus. Friend, you are on the right road to follow Jesus. Because when you recognize your desperate need for Jesus, is when you are ready to follow Jesus. How can you we sit back and admire the beauty of Mark's gospel and this beautiful picture. Friends, we don't want to be like some artists who just admire pictures and don't ever become a part of the picture. Friends, we want to become a part of the story that Mark has for us this morning. And we can become a part of it by repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ. Christian or not, that message is for all. As Mark said, that even the Son of Man came not to serve what? Not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ Jesus gave his life for your life. Will you give your life for him? Let's pray. Eternal Father. no sin too great this morning. There's no there's nothing, nothing that is hindering us from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would encourage the saints. I pray that you would bear fruit in our lives as we continue to journey through the Bible to hear more about this Son Help us by your spirit to follow Christ, to know him more fully.